Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Pascal Joassar Marcelli, author of The $16 Taco, Contested Geographies of Food, Ethnicity, and Gentrification, published this year by University of Washington Press. Dr. Joassar Marcelli, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, So I'm a professor of geography at San Diego State University. I'm an urban geographer. Um, I spent most of graduate school and the first few years of my career um, studying urban poverty and low-wage labor markets, trying to understand how geography shapes employment opportunities. Um, I focused specifically on low-wage and informal jobs that were primarily filled by women and immigrants. Um, And then a little more than a decade ago, I discovered food and it changed everything for me. Um, I had always been interested in food. I love to cook. I like to eat out. I even have a garden. Um, As an immigrant, I've always been interested in um, different food cultures. But I had never considered food uh, beyond a hobby. And in the mid-2000s or so, there's a number of popular books and documentaries that came out, and that really opened my eyes to the significance of food in shaping sort of a relationship to each other and to the environment, and made it, uh, from my, on, in my eyes, a sort of valid scholarly pursuit. And so when I came to San Diego State University in 2007, I proposed to teach an undergraduate geography of food class that used food as a window to introduce students to geography, first of all, because geography is often an unknown discipline, and kind of using food to do that, looking at the environmental impact of food production, food culture, globalization, urban foodscapes, etc. And I really loved teaching that class, and I think students enjoyed it too. And so it went from teaching to research. And since then, food has been at the center of all of my research, uh, which continues to look at questions of low-wage labor market, immigration, access issues, urban segregation, etc. But it's always in the context of food. And um, as a scholar, I've also been um, involved as an activist with several organizations in San Diego that are working towards building um, local, just, sustainable food system. And so this book emerged out of this teaching, research, and activism. Um, And um, over the past 
decade or so, I've really been doing a lot of research looking at urban neighborhoods with limited access to fresh and healthy food, what we often call food desert. And uh, neighborhoods where most of the immigrants, at least in San Diego, are uh, most of the residents are immigrants and people of color. And I've been trying to understand why supermarkets and grocery stores have left those places and also looking at all the different ways that people in these communities deal with this absence of food uh, in resourceful ways, you know, maybe running small ethnic businesses, vending in the streets, growing food in community gardens, sharing food with each other, etc. And so I've been mostly focusing on uh, food injustices and alternative solutions. But it's in that context that I started noticing that a lot of these neighborhoods were getting attention from college educated, fairly affluent, mostly white people who were going there in search of unique and perhaps authentic food experiences. And um, this started puzzling me because these were the neighborhoods that were supposed to be neglected and ignored, and suddenly they were getting a lot of attention. And this this is kind of an anecdote, but this really hit, hit me um, on the way back from a annual geography uh, conference meeting where I was sitting on the airplane and I was just waiting for the plane to take off, flipping through the magazine um, of the, the airline. And there was an article about Barrio Logan, which is one of the communities in San Diego that I've studied, um, where at the time there was no supermarkets. And so it was officially considered a food desert. And I had just given a presentation about that. And in the article, it was basically telling people, go check out this neighborhood. You'll have the best experience. There's the most authentic food. You can go to this Mexican hot dog place. You can go to this brewery. You can check out this taco place. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, but it was kind of reinforcing some of the observations that I had been making. And so that's sort of what prompted me to write the book and to answer questions like, does this newfound interests in ethnic food in these immigrant neighborhood? Does it uplift ethnic businesses and food workers? Does it bring income and resources to immigrant and ethnic neighborhoods? Um, does it maybe signal a new attitude towards race and ethnicity, a sort of colorblind society? Or does it promote gentrification and displacement? And so that's kind of the background of my work and how I got to the $16 taco and to this book. Okay. So before we dive into some of the bigger claims you're making in the book, I have to ask about the title because uh, it's a, a great title. And I'll admit I've eaten my share of pricey, gentrified uh, tacos, but I haven't quite seen any going for $16. So what exactly is in a $16 taco? And where do you get this? And who is buying uh, a taco for $16? Yeah, so the $16 taco to me really symbolizes like everything that I'm talking about in this book. It's an actual taco um, that is uh, that consisted of uh, steak and lobster. So it's sort of a surf and turf taco, which is definitely not very authentic, but it's sold for $16. And um, several people mentioned that taco to me. And 
you know, in most of the neighborhoods that I studied, tacos usually sell for two, three, sometimes in fancier establishment, maybe five or six dollars, but rarely $16 taco. And actually, two of the people I interviewed uh, who were resident of this neighborhood mentioned it to me, and they definitely were not happy about the $16 taco. Um, and so it's really a symbol of everything that's going on in, in these neighborhood uh, kind of the longtime residents who are offended. But then the people who are eating it are often uh, people from the outside, um, for lack of a better term, maybe hipsters and foodies, young people who are attracted to these neighborhoods because they think they're going to discover something special and they really just can't get enough of it. And so restaurateurs figured out that they could charge $16 for it and people would actually buy it, um, which... Yeah, I can like just envision somebody like wanting to go to this place to buy this $16 taco just so that they can like put themselves on Instagram or TikTok or something and be like, look, I ate the $16 taco. Yeah. I mean, social media is a really big part of a lot of this trend. And in fact, in the book, I spent quite a bit of time talking about the way we um, this you know the way we represent food, but not just food. The way we represent ethnicity, immigrant communities, neighborhoods um, on social media, and all the biases that come with it. Yeah. So one of your core ideas in the book is the the contrast between what you call the ethnic foodscape and the cosmopolitan foodscape. So could you define those two terms for us and explain why they're useful in understanding this uh, complex of food and gentrification that you're analyzing? Sure. Um, So for me, the ethnic foodscape is kind of what is associated with neighborhoods whose food environment are shaped by the history as ethnic enclaves. And they've sort of evolved um, to meet the needs of immigrants and people of color who live there. Um, and that's people who are viewed as ethnic. And I know that the term ethnic is always problematic in some ways. Um, and ethnic typically means non-white or racialized other. So ethnic foodscape is about those racialized other. And it's something that kind of grew organically to uh, meet their needs. But of course, it's also shaped by outside forces. And I can talk more about that. But in contrast to the ethnic foodscape, there's the so-called cosmopolitan foodscape, which is a much more eclectic environment that's sort of designed purposely and curated to attract foodies and outside consumers who presumably will spend have more disposable income and will spend more money. So one is kind of for and by um, people who cook ethnic food, sell ethnic food, and the other is for outsiders. Um, And so the book is very much about discussing this transition, how we go from an ethnic foodscape to a cosmopolitan foodscape. And um, this idea of foodscape is a really powerful idea In geography, it's based on this notion of landscape, which is a key concept in geography. But unfortunately, there's also a lot of people who write about foodscape who are not necessarily familiar with the landscape um, work and scholarship in geography. And so for many people, it's just kind of a, a snapshot of what it looks like. But I like to think of foodscape in more dynamic ways and to think of it as not just the built environment, 
um, you know, the restaurants, the shops, the kitchens, the gardens, etc. But also the bodies and the objects that are within them, um, you know, whether it's the cooks or the consumers, the foodies, the visitors, the tourists. But in terms of objects, it could be ingredients, recipes, um, special cookwares, dishes that people use, uh, vending carts, and so on. And then an additional layer is also the ideologies, the emotions, the imaginaries that are attached to it. So the taste, the smell, um, ideas of domesticity, ideas of uh, authenticity, all of these things that sort of shape the landscape. So the landscape is material, but it's also very much discursive and emotional, and it's always changing. And so the ethnic foodscape includes all of these things, and it's changing progressively, at least in many of the neighborhoods that I studied, it's progressively turning into a cosmopolitan foodscape. Yeah, I think you touched on there, I think two of the more, the important things that you're doing in the book, that you're trying to connect together the the material and the symbolic mm-hmm. dimensions. You know, and you talk about that a lot of past research has kind of focused on one or the other side of that, but you're really trying to tie them together, see how they shape each other. And then this idea that these are dynamic processes, that we're, we're looking at changes that are happening, not just a, a single snapshot in time. So could you talk a little bit more about what are some of these changes in the neighborhoods that you're, you're studying? How, how and why are they changing? Well, I think that in order to understand these changes, it's really important to look at it historically, right? Not just look at it right now and say, okay, this is what's happening, but think about it as part of a long process. And one of the things that is happening right now is really, in a nutshell, gentrification through food. But for gentrification to happen in these places, they first have to be devalued so that they become cheap and the housing stock becomes more affordable and then there's opportunities for people to invest and benefit from the uh, the price difference. And that's kind of where gentrification comes in. But so the devaluation of these neighborhoods is really something that has happened um, over time. And that is also something that you can look at by looking at food and by looking at the food environment of many of the neighborhoods that I'm studying. So to kind of situate this a little bit, uh, the three neighborhoods on which my book focused are Barrio Logan, City Heights, and Southeastern San Diego. And all three are located east of downtown San Diego, um, just a few a mile or so away from Balboa Park, which is kind of like the green core of um, the city of San Diego. So they kind of older inner ring suburbs that are now very much urbanized and really no longer look like suburbs, they're urban areas, but they're not right at the core, they're not in downtown. And these areas used to be thriving areas, especially Barrio Logan and City Heights. They had a very active uh, food retail retail sectors, they had grocery stores, they had restaurants, Uh, many of them, especially in Barrio Logan, were ethnic restaurants and businesses. And things changed over time. And there's a lot of divestment that happened. A lot of grocery stores moved away. A lot of the smaller businesses could not compete 
with the larger grocery stores that are mostly located in suburbs. So the white flight of the 1950s and 60s, all of the suburbanization really started an era of decay in these neighborhoods where the retail sector really uh, started declining. And um, that's created this sort of situation that I think might be better described as food apartheid than food desert, because I think it's highlight how access to food sort of has been and still is limited because of specific policies that are denying residents the same opportunities as suburban residents um, who have historically benefited from all kinds of advantages like transportation infrastructure, subsidized mortgages, new schools, commercial development, etc. And uh, you can see that through um, this process of uh, suburbanization that itself is also tied with racial processes like redlining, um, zoning, um, public investments, etc. So over the over time, you can see these neighborhoods declining for a number of political and economic reasons. And as they're declining, they become home for low-income households, many of whom are immigrants. And so in these areas where they have limited access to healthy food, they've had to come up with basically their own strategy to, you know, feed their families. And so they um, started involved in ethnic entrepreneurship. Um, Some people grew food in uh, gardens. They started doing all of these things that are strategic responses to divestment and to food apartheid. But at the same time, these sort of survival and survival and self-reliance strategies are also what now are sort of making them attractive to outsiders. And so in order to understand what's happening right now, we, we had to look at the past and look at how we got to this situation where we have a very different foodscape in these neighborhoods. And now we have people... Um, who are more affluent, more educated, more quote-unquote culturally enlightened, who are interested in experiences. They're interested in diversity. They're interested in authenticity. And they love discovering new places. And so these neighborhoods are prime target. They're prime target for foodies to go check them out and to go have a good time. But they also more importantly, prime target for um, investors, realtors, uh, bankers, restaurateurs, uh, tourists, um, agencies, etc., who see them as opportunities for investment. And so what is happening right now is we have not just foodies that are visiting these places, but we have investors that are looking at them as ideal places to open a... I don't know, a reinvented, uplifted um, taco restaurant where the taco ends up being $16. And so in the process, that's also generating displacement. And so it's kind of the same story that's being repeated over time because I think we can think of this as a continuation of food apartheid, of people who might have come up with their own solutions to these difficult situations who are now yet once again being 
excluded from the benefits of what what they've created in many ways. Yeah, I think there's this rosy narrative that, you know, by kind of eating food from people who are different from you and, you know, crossing these geographical and ethno-racial lines through food, that's going to kind of, you know, bring us all together and end the kinds of discrimination that produce these inequalities. But you're really saying that that kind of process can really perpetuate these inequalities as well. It can be, you know, having some of the same negative effects on people and communities that the kind of stigmatization of their food in the past uh, had. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, that's really, in a way, that's the main argument of the book is this idea that we typically assume that that would have a positive impact. You know, it may be more jobs, more revenue, more investment, um, maybe greater food security. Um, and again, this cultural idea that maybe we're moving towards a colorblind society as people spend time together and interact with each other and discover each other's culture, that all sounds very positive. But I question a lot of these assumptions in the book and I show how food really can serve as a very uh, apolitical way or depoliticized way to pave the way for gentrification and ultimately causing the displacement of people who've been there for a long time and who have actually built this foodscape out of necessity and um, resilience. Um, and so, yes, that's the that's kind of the the main argument. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, just a bit ago the specific neighborhoods that you're focusing on here. So this is a book that's really grounded in some specific places in San Diego. So I wanted to ask you to talk about what makes San Diego a good place to examine these issues because you know this is this is not something unique to San Diego you know mm-hmm. i've seen similar things happen all the way out in pittsburgh where i live but you know what makes san diego a good case study for illustrating the kinds of uh, claims that you're making yeah i think there's several good reasons um, one is it's a mid-sized city so it's not you know the major foodie destination like New York and San Francisco, LA, places like that. It's like a mid-sized city that resemble many other mid-sized cities in the United States in some ways. So it's just an illustration of something that is actually taking place in a lot of cities. Um, we've seen that in so many neighborhoods. Uh, this just a long list of neighborhoods across the United States where this kind of food gentrification is happening. Um, it's also... Interesting because San Diego is a tourist destination and food is really a big industry here, um, even though we're not known as a very, um, you know, high cuisine type of place. We're known more as a casual food city, um, which makes it interesting because there's a lot of outsiders coming uh, to stay here and to enjoy the beaches and so on. But more and more people are paying attention to um, food as well and culture. So I think San Diego um, makes it an interesting place. And then it's also a place where there's a lot of diversity. Uh, There's a very large immigrant population. We don't always see that 
especially as tourists. If you stick to the beach communities, you may not see all of that diversity. But if you go inland a little bit and look at the neighborhoods that I've been studying, there's really uh, amazing diversity. And City Heights in particular is really a super interesting uh, community to look at that because it's an area that... um, was mostly a middle-class white community in the 1920s and 30s. And then after World War II, um, when suburbanization occurred, a lot of um, people moved out. And so the community really changed demographically. And one of the big um, things that happened also is change in zoning regulation from single-family to multifamily, and then the construction of two freeways that completely dissected the neighborhood. So the neighborhood was really hurting uh, from some of these policies and suburbanization. And at the time, uh, that began in the 1970s, then some uh, refugee resettlement agencies uh, figured that that would be a very good place to resettle refugees. And so the first wave of refugees came from Vietnam in the 1970s, and many families were relocated in City Heights. And then these agencies continue to basically, they work with uh, contracts from the federal government mostly, and they uh, have continued to resettle different waves of refugees from um, Cambodia, um, East Africa. Um, Now we have people from Syria, from Iraq, from different places. And so it's an extremely diverse community where you can't really pinpoint one dominant ethnicity, uh, although Mexicans are probably still the largest group there, but there's restaurants from every ethnicity that you can think of in that small community. And so that makes it really interesting to study these issues. Okay, so now let's talk a bit about your methods. So this is primarily an ethnographic book, but then you also tie in some other sources of data like census records and uh, historical data about the locations of supermarkets and you know some other things. So could you talk about your approach to doing the, the ethnographic work and how you tied it to these other uh, sources of data? You know, what, what were some of the challenges and opportunities that you faced in actually carrying out the research that this book is based on? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's really a mixed methods project. My um, background, the, my early research was more quantitative than qualitative. And so I often like to start from a quantitative angle, maybe mapping something and looking at census data. But that's just an entry point for me. So I do a lot of that. Um, I have a number of maps in the book illustrating different phenomena, looking at gentrification, for example, or looking at uh, the retail sector and the concentration of grocery stores and how it has evolved over time. But I combine that mostly with ethnographic work uh, that uh, that really has been ongoing for many years now. And that has involved uh, students and colleagues. A lot of that is very collaborative. So, for example, I've done a lot of work with uh, my colleague Fernando Bosco at SDSU, where we've conducted interviews. Uh, We've also done um, store audits, uh, where we've visited basically every single 
food store in uh, some neighborhoods and con- uh, collected a lot of information. And then we combined that with interviews of the store owners and food workers. Um, I've also conducted a lot of interviews of uh, restaurant workers and interviews of consumers who are residents of uh, these neighborhoods. Um, and so that's something that has been going on. You know, if I combine uh, all the different parts of this project, it really took, I would say, five, six, seven years altogether. And it also involved um, undergraduate research classes, with we, like, for example, the store audits. Um, I did those with, with students. Um, so it's really a lot of mixed methods. And then um, I also... Um, spend quite a bit of time looking at social media and looking at websites and looking at um, um, foodie magazines, uh, food media in general um, as another source of information. So I'm really combining a lot of different things and I, I'm really enjoying doing that. I think it's really nice to kind of triangulate these different sources of information and see how they tell a story to get, you know, when you combine them, they really tell a powerful story, I think. Yeah. And so how did you make some of the, the connections that you, you know, have with the people that you're, you're working with, interviewing and so forth? Because you're coming from a position of being maybe a little more like the, the foodies coming to eat the $16 taco in terms of your own, you know, positionality. Um you know, how did you how did you make those connections and and establish uh, establish that? Right. Well, I am definitely uh, my position is definitely one of a foodie, even though I don't like to call myself that way. I have to acknowledge that I am a bit of a foodie and that I absolutely love eating out and discovering in new places and trying on new food. So I'm definitely uh, guilty of all of that. And I think these connections were made partly because I've also been working with community organizations in these neighborhoods before I started looking at the kind of the more um, consumer-oriented foodscape. I was really first studying issues of food justice and access to fresh and healthy food. So I already had connections with people in the community, including some uh, retailers who are trying to work to improve food access for local residents. Uh, So these connections helped. I think working with students was also um, very helpful because a lot of the students I work with are from all kinds of um, ethnic backgrounds as well. And so they really often had a very good contact with uh, people when we went to different stores and interviewed people. And um, I just went there. And honestly, I was amazed at how friendly and open people were to talk to me about the experiences, whether it was people working in the businesses or consumers, people just, I really did not have a very difficult time communicating with people and interacting with people. Uh, they, They all had amazing stories to tell. I mean, some interviews were obviously much shorter than others, but I think food is an amazing topic it just gets people going it's easy to talk about food everybody loves to talk about food i think and so maybe i just got lucky because i had a topic that made people want to talk but i did not experience a lot of challenges talking to people um 
Yeah, it's always nice when you're able to to you know get in and, and talk to people, and they're they're happy to talk with you and work with you. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned in that answer, and also touched on it earlier, that you have a lot of involvement in this kind of food justice activism that's going on in the city. So, could you talk just a little more about the connections that you see between this book and that? activist work? Like, how do you position yourself as a, a scholar slash activist? And, you know, what what's the role that writing a book like this would play for you as, as someone actively working uh, for food justice? Well, I think that, you know, ultimately, one of the kind of implication of the book is that it's about food sovereignty. It's about people being able to control and benefit from their own food system, control what food they eat, how they produce it, where it comes from, and having a say in all of that. And um, that's what a number of organizations are trying to do. I think a lot of food organizations have been focusing more on a kind of um, providing Band-Aids, um, you know, distributing food, improving access to food. That's, of course, extremely important, and I'm not minimizing that kind of work. But I think that today there are a number of organizations that are trying to go beyond that and that are, try- that are trying to address some of the deeper issues that are causing uh, food apartheid. And part of it is about reclaiming the foodscape and reclaiming ownership of food, of food, of recipes, of ways of growing, of sharing, of uh, practices. And so there's an organization that I've been working with uh, for many years now uh, called called Project New Village, and they have been working towards a good food district. And the good food district is basically um, an initiative that is built for and by people of Southeastern San Diego, and it's trying to be as inclusive as possible, but at the same time, it's also thinking about welcoming outsiders, but really making the Good Food District for local residents and engaging local residents. So that's the priority. The priority is local residents. And so the way I've been working with them is I've been attending all kinds of meetings and you know uh, contributing uh, that way, but I've also written reports for them and with them. I've been, um, I'm using some of my GIS skills to create story maps where we gather information together and we try to tell the story of the neighborhood and present a different narrative than the narrative that you see in the food media. Because in the food media, a lot of time, the people are absent the people are erased from these narratives. They might be talking about ethnic food, but they don't really talk about the immigrants or they don't talk about the struggle. So they want ethnic food without immigrants in some ways. And so we're trying to reinsert these stories and you know present these narratives and facilitate really what I'm hoping to do, what I'm trying to do is facilitate this, this storytelling because it's not my story. So some people could say it's not my story to tell. I'm trying to do it in the best possible way I can. And that happened in a sharing environment where you can share the stories, where people feel comfortable telling me this story so that I can 
retail, retail it with the permission and with the input and, and the, um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So to wrap up our interview here, we always like to end by asking what you're working on next. Uh, what kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out? Yeah, well, I'm working on a couple of things. Um, one thing that I find very interesting, and that's related to some of the work that I already did is, in this uh, book, is related to uh, food labor and the work that goes into making a cosmopolitan foodscape, but also making just a trendy foodscape in general. And there's a lot of labor that's involved in it. And there's maybe the back of the restaurant, back of the house type of labor, but there's also the front labor, the more visible face. And there's a lot of aesthetic issues associated with that. And it often looks very uh, cool to be working as a bartender or barista or baker or, you know, that's something that has been turned into a very creative uh, occupation. But in reality, it's still very precarious in many environments. So it's almost as if we aesthetically refashioning these gig jobs into something that's fun and cool to do um, without acknowledging all of the issues beyond uh, that form of labor. So I'm paying a little bit more attention to that. Um, I'm kind of trying to look at the different type of works that are labor that are involved in producing uh, food. And another uh, project that I'm looking at, that I'm working on right now is also with uh, street vendors and home cooks who are, uh, there's a number of legislations in California that are trying to facilitate that and decriminalize these type of activities, but there's still a lot of obstacles. And so I'm working with a few organizations in San Diego, trying to just get a better sense of um, what street vendor are doing, uh, what kind of obstacles they're facing, what kind of livelihoods they earn by vending street, and same thing with home cooks. Um, and again, always looking at uh, relationship to race, ethnicity, placemaking, um, and gender in the case of the home cooks. I think it's an important issue. So these are two projects that are kind of uh, in front of me right now, but I'm sure okay. there'll be more. All right. Well, if if either of those results in a book, we'd love to have you back. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was fun. You just heard a conversation with Pascal Josar Marcelli, author of The $16 Taco, Contested Geographies of Food, Ethnicity, and Gentrification, published this year by University of Washington Press.